We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. And um, unity is so important, right? It's, it's obvious. It's so obvious. I don't have to go into details, explain why that this message is so important for our world right now. And it's so important for the church because for a couple of reasons. It affects our unity, our oneness affects the worship that we give to God, positively or negatively. And it also has a major, major impact on our ability to witness the, go- the gospel to people who don't believe. You know, one of the main turnoffs, one of the main reasons that people have lost faith in the church is the fact that you have 800 different denominations of churches. We ourselves have become divided in many ways. And the main thing, guys, if you come away with one thing from today's lesson, is that unity is worth it at any price. Any price. Be willing to pay any price for unity. And after this message, I hope that you're so fired up for unity that you look at the price that it costs, and you said, that, I'll take 10 of them. That's dirt cheap. What a deal. I'll take it. And I'll tell you right now that the price of unity is conflict. Conflict is an absolute must if you are to have unity. Now, that sounds kind of weird, but think about it like this. It's impossible to have joy if you don't have difficult circumstances, because otherwise then you're just you're happy. It's impossible to be patient if you don't have to wait for something. You can just have it all right now. You don't. Where's patience? All of these for all of these Christian virtues. There's a price for all of them. The, the price for patience is you have to wait. You have to wait. And so the price of unity is conflict, and we need to be willing to pay that price. Now, Ephesians chapter four. We start to shift. The book so far has been incredible, and it's just been, it's been cerebral and theological and the height and the width and the depth of God's love, and there's been practical applications sprinkled throughout, but we're starting to move more into direct practical application. So, let's start in verse, uh, verse chapter 1. Verse chapter 1. Verse 1 of chapter 4. <laughs> uh, it says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I'm going to interrupt myself for a second because we can't just gloss over this. When you, when you read your Bible, whether you read it at morning or at night, have your eyes peeled, your eyes open, because we're reading this from Paul. It says, I am a prisoner of the Lord. Man, it, let's, just, let's just let this give us some perspective about what Paul is about to say. He is in prison. It's not going good for him. And it's his faith, essentially, is what has led him there, and persecution from his faith. He's a prisoner, and he's urging, from his in chains, he's urging us, he's urging you today, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, what is the calling to which a Christian has been called? Now, there's you could answer that question a number of different ways, but I want to give a little different take today on what is the calling that a Christian has been called to. And I believe that it's to be the kinds of people or the types of people that God could empower to accomplish what we want to. 
I'm going to say that one more time. To be the kinds of people that God could empower to, to accomplish what we want to. And I know what some of you are thinking. That I, I might have just misspoke. Didn't I mean to say that we would accomplish what God wants us to accomplish? I want you to just maybe look at the person next to you. Look to your left, look to your right, and then ask yourself, what if that person had all the power, they had the power to do whatever they wanted? They had that kind of power. How does that, how does that make you, how do you feel comfortable with that, the person sitting next to you? I, that was intentionally designed to make you a little uncomfortable. It's a much greater thing. Guys, God is in big business. He's not into small, he's into big things. It's so much more bigger, so much more amazing for God to take a free being, take a free being to the point to where they can be empowered to do what they want rather than to just program somebody or to coerce somebody into doing what he wants. And a perfect example of this is Jesus. Jesus chose the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In John chapter 10, he says, I laid down my life on my own accord. No one takes it from me. And those are the shoes that we are called to walk in. And it's very easy, it's very easy to start setting a different standard for ourselves, to start, to to move the goalposts to something other than Jesus. It's very easy to do that. We start, you know, it just becomes, well, what is, what is society doing? What do they think? What is, what do my neighbors think? What What is Bob and Sally think? I just need to compare myself to them. And that is not the case with our calling. It goes on to say, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Does this sound kind of difficult to you? You know, who of us loves being patient? Hey, you know, Hey, what's up, dude? What are you doing today? Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm waiting in line right now, and it's amazing. Awesome, dude. I've never had that phone conversation. Or maybe something a little more practical is that that, that brother or sister just said something insensitive. Or did something insensitive. Said something I strongly disagree with. Or did something I strongly disagree with. Or something that is, wait for it, sinful. What's our response? Are we eager? Yes, I can't wait to go talk to that brother or sister about that and disciple their heart and help them live to the calling that they've been called to. And we're going to sharpen each other through this process, and we're going to be unified and have respect and love for one another 
in this process. That should be our response. Now, I want to clarify something. And I'm going to use a video clip from uh, someone who is widely regarded as quite possibly the second greatest man to ever live in human history. His name is Ron Swanson. This is a mistake. Why would you call it that on your menu? I don't know what to tell you, man. Just give me all the bacon and eggs you have. Wait, wait. I worry what you just heard was, give me a lot of bacon and eggs. What I said was, give me all the bacon and eggs you have. Do you understand? So what Paul is saying here, he's not saying, you know, have a little humility, have a little gentleness. Let's see if I can get this thing to work. He says all. Have all. All humility. All. Okay, I'm just all messed up. You want Ellen, you want to go to uh, the next one? And then it's right there. So, no, but we're going to move to We're just going to go to this part. We're just going to go to this part. He said all with all humility. And then other translators say with complete humility, complete gentleness. Man, that, you know what that means? It means that we have further to go. We all have further to go in this, in this striving for unity. And you know, these are all things, this is where grace, grace comes in, and it's not about the law. Because all these things, patience, gentleness, you can't do patience. You can't do gentleness. You can be patient. You can be gentle. And so that's why God works on our heart to, to make us the kind of people that will be these things. To make us the kind of people that if we were empowered to do whatever we want, we would use that power exclusively for the benefit of others. This, bearing with one another, gentleness, patience, this is how we have unity in the church, is this process. Not, not by being right, not by forcing others to conform to our standards. It's no wonder. If this, is, if this is the path to unity, it's no wonder that our culture, our world, is so divided and confused. The bond of peace. That scripture ends with, this is held together with the bond of peace. And that, that's the first... If you remember, the, you remember what I said at the beginning, that pay any price for conflict, remember this, the bond of peace is a, is a huge component of this. And a lot of times when we think of peace, the world a lot of times thinks of peace as a lack of conflict. Like if you just don't have conflict, then you have peace. Or if you're able to coexist, then you have peace. But the biblical idea of peace is if I could put it in one word, it's oneness. It's this idea of oneness. So I want to ask everyone in this room, what is holding everyone in this room together right now? Everyone who's watching online, 
What's holding this group of people together right now? Is it the fact that we're all members of the same religious organization? Or is it the bond of peace? What about other areas of your life? What about you and your roommates? Is it the bond of the lease that's keeping you together? Or is it the bond of peace? Your family. Is it the bond of, well, we're, we're related, so I guess we have to live together? Or is it the bond of peace, biblical peace, oneness? What about personally for you, your relationship with God? What is holding it together? Is it the, is it the bond of religious duty or the bond of peace and oneness with God? The bond of peace, peace, true peace, biblical peace. We must have this in order to have unity. Secondly, uniformity is not unity. Uniformity is not unity. Let's read here. Ephesians 4, 4-7 says, There was one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, so I'm going to unfortunately not do like a full treatment of this section of Scripture, because we, we could do a whole sermon right here, but I'll just say a couple things and we'll move on. First of all, so many false teachings are dealt with in the, these couple verses. One would be that there are, there's one faith. You know, someone who has a very powerful voice in our society recently kind of went viral for this video of saying that there's plenty of, there's multiple ways to have. It deals with that false teaching. The idea of the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of water, there's only one baptism. And I think most importantly of all, there's only one God and Father of all. We all have the same Father. We all have the same Father. And so, when you're, when you get angry, when you get upset, when you get emotional, when you're dealing with conflict, it's so helpful to remember that we all have the same Father. We're all part of the same family. Let's keep reading here in verse 8. It says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts, gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower, lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. He might fill all things. You know, this passage here, it says that, when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. I we're going to delve into that a little bit in just a second. But I love that. That God, he's the giver of all good things. He gives gifts to men. And then we have this parentheses part. It's like, I mean, maybe it's kind of confusing. I don't know if you're following, but I'm going to just give a quick explanation here. Basically what Paul is saying is, in order for Jesus to have ascended... You can't, he, he must have descended first, which is the idea that the, of the incarnation when God became 
flesh, when he became the man, Jesus. And some, some people read this as the idea that he went, when he went to the lower regions of the earth, that this is when Jesus, when he died for the three days that he was dead, that he went into the underworld and, and dealt with Satan and his demons and all those things. That is, that is a viable reading of this. You, you definitely could interpret it that way. The way that I interpret it is that this is talking about his, his life on earth and how when he came to earth, he, he came to the lower regions of the earth, meaning he was humbled. He was humiliated. He suffered more than anyone. He was brought down to the lowest of lows that a human could possibly be. And part of the reason I think that as well is if Jesus ascended above the heavens, where, where is that? I think that's a hyperbole. I think it's also hyperbole to say he descended below the earth, into the lower regions of the earth. Let's look at these, uh, these gifts. So now Paul's going to talk about these gifts. He gave gifts. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So this is by no means, we have a few, we have a few roles here, right? The apostle, the prophet, event. this is by no means an exhaustive list. Like, if you're not one of these things, then it must be you don't have these gifts that Christ gave. There's actually more than 20 spiritual gifts in the Bible, and some of them are as simple as Romans 12 says that the gift of showing mercy is a spiritual gift. So we all have these spiritual gifts, and we all have them because it says to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Remember, we talked about this it was a while ago. Saints. Who's a saint? Well, it's anyone who's a disciple of Jesus is a saint. It's not just the special disciples, or the leaders, the saints. You're a saint. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is not just, well, in order for us to be unified, it can't be just the leadership's job. It's all of our jobs. And, and as, as a leader, and as a leadership group, and a leadership staff, our job and our goal is to equip you because you have gifts and you have the Holy Spirit. And so whatever you're passionate about, whatever God wants to empower you to accomplish through you, our job is to help you do that, help you accomplish that, teach you to do that better. The work of the ministry is for every saint, every one of us. You have the gifts, you have the Spirit, Go! Go do it! We almost work together to have unity. We can't be unified biblically and have some spectating and some working. And then we, we grow into adulthood, right? It says mature manhood. We grow. This is how we become mature in our faith in Christ. You know, actually, we were talking before church a little bit. I was with Joel and Dustin. They were talking about basketball a little bit. And, you know, the best compliment you can get on the bat, if you're playing with dudes, 
best compliment you can get on the basketball court is, that's a grown man. That's a grown man right there. Like, the couple of times in my life I've been called a grown man by a group of strangers at the court, I'm like, oh man, I'm just walking tall the rest of that day. <laughs> the best compliment you can get. And, um, you know, I haven't got to play basketball with Dustin yet, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. You know, I got this, I got this funny feeling that he's a grown man. I got a funny feeling. But Joel, on the other hand, he's an itty-bitty baby. <laughs> you guys ever seen this? People do this in basketball? It means they're rocking the baby. So you, you get a bucket on somebody, and you rock them. All right, where was I? I actually lost my place. Give me a second. All right, verse 14. So that we may no longer be chilled, right? Tossed around by the... Human cunning, by craftiness, by ideas, by postmodernism, by anything that tries to break us apart of our unity to that one faith. And it's obvious that right now that there is a huge political cultural divide in our country. In the world, in our country, according to different polls and such, we're, we're more divided than we've ever been since the Civil War as a country. Currently, there's five counties in the state of Oregon that are trying to secede from the state and join the state of Idaho. Okay, so it's just, this is happening. And this, this, all this political uprising, social uprising, has been devastating to the church of God. It's, and when I say that to, to the church as a whole, like churches all over the world have been devastated, and even in our, amongst our own fellowship, we're pretty insulated here in Eau Claire from all the havoc that this is wreaking. That's, right now, I don't know, that's the main attack right now. That Satan, the world, the flesh is trying to divide us politically and culturally. And we can't let that happen. You know, this church, you guys, <clears throat> I am committed to you. Like, I hope you feel a sense of oneness when you come here as well. Because... I am so indebted to so many of you. And I feel like, man, I, I want to fight for this. I'll pay any price. Because this is my family, and I'm not going anywhere. You guys are my family. You know, I wouldn't have, if it weren't for <clears throat> Chris Moose and Phil Drager, I wouldn't have a working car. They have bailed me out on multiple occasions when I needed help with my car. I wouldn't have food on the table if it weren't for Kenny and Jared giving me a job when I needed it. I wouldn't have an amazing wife and daughter if it wasn't for this church. Because I moved here and met my wife, and now we have our daughter's turns one tomorrow. It's crazy. In this church, every one of you is also given me incredible faith. You know, the fact is, just the reality is of the situation, we don't all share the same gender, obviously. We don't all share the same race, obviously. We don't all share the same political beliefs, obviously. We don't all share, we don't all root for the same teams, obviously. But we are all of the same faith. If your solution... If your to, this pro to this divide that's happening, if your solution 
is to leave and to find a group of people that are more in alliance with your ideas and what you think, then you're not seeking the church of Christ. You're seeking the church of yourself. The diversity of the church. When I say diversity, I don't just mean race. I mean thought, opinion, background, career. The diversity of God's church is what makes this thing so beautiful. I mean, that's the whole, that's what Paul's getting at. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all these passages about the body of Christ uses the body as an analogy because the body has so many parts. There's so many different things in your body. There's 100,000 miles of blood vessels in your body if you laid them out in a straight line. Like, that's, it's so different. There's so many components. And it's when we find unity amongst that diversity that is Glory to God that expresses the manifold wisdom of God. <clears throat> Uniformity is not unity. All right, I'll conclude with this. We'll wrap up here. Read this last, I got one other verse uh, in this last bit of Ephesians here. It says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. So we see the body, once again, right? The human body being used as this analogy for the church. In each part, working properly. Going back to the idea of we can't have spectators. We all got to be in this together. You can't have parts of your body that are just hanging limp, hanging there. And then we build ourselves up in love. Lastly, guys, not, not, not world love, not, not Hollywood love, not Cupid love, biblical love. Biblical love. And you know what biblical love is? It's, it's a lot of things, but I would, to put my finger on it, I would say it's self-sacrificial love. When we, sac- when we, at a cost to ourselves, when we sacrifice that's when we have biblical love. And once again, we see that in Jesus. And so when, let's just read this verse here, this last verse. Jesus says this in John 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, when it comes to our witness, right, this impacts our witness. I I want people who aren't a part of the church, who don't believe in God, to, even if they don't believe what we believe, think what we think, I want them to be able to look at our church and say, but oh my goodness, they love each other. You know, the world is sick and tired of hearing about the love of Jesus. They want to see it. And they never will if we don't hold together through the bond of peace. Right? Humility. Complete humility. Gentleness. If we don't embrace, embrace and love the diversity of God's church. And if we don't have self-sacrificial love for one another. We must pay the price 
for unity, no matter how much it costs. With that, I'm going to pray for communion. And as we meditate silently of Jesus self-sacrificially loving us, giving up everything, being our example, uh, after a couple minutes of meditation, the, uh, a song is going to come on, and it's, it's kind of an upbeat song. It's a good way to come out of communion. The Hans and the Valdezes put it together. I thought it was it's awesome. So really, and it's in uh, their native tongue, Tagalog. I, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but uh, really cool. So that'll kind of bring us out of communion. So let's go ahead and bow our heads, and then we'll take communion.